Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. This week continues our series, The Story. Enjoy and thanks for listening. I want to welcome you to The Story today. It's a real privilege to have you here this morning and our journey in looking at key events and our investigation of key people in Scripture continues. If you have a Bible or a device, I want you to find Ezra chapter 1. This is where we're going to hang out today, and we're going to look at a couple of different chapters and several different verses in this great book. Ezra is an Old Testament scribe and prophet and priest, and there is certainly much that we can learn from him. We'll begin in Ezra chapter 1. While you're searching for that, I want to share our upper story statement for today. And keep in mind that the upper story is the big idea of what God is doing. It's his view. And our upper story statement for today is, put first things first. Or we could say it this way, put God's things first. Put first things first, and this will come out in our story today. Let's move into the lower story. These are the actual historical events that are taking place on earth. So if you have your Bible open to Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. Here's what the Word of God says. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. Now let's pause there and review for a bit before we look at this proclamation that King Cyrus gave. This is a very interesting time in world history because there's basically three different world powers. There's the Assyrians, and we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, And they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And they began to deport God's people and take them away from their home. Eventually, the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the new world power. And what we talked about a couple of weeks ago is the Babylonians then invaded the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. and deported more of God's people away from their homeland. The Babylonians are the new world power. Do you remember we talked about Daniel last week? Does anybody remember him? Hopefully, you remember Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. This is the verse I asked everybody to memorize last week that talks about how Daniel was determined not to defile himself. That word determined there is very interesting because it means he had this purpose on the inside, deep down in his soul, He had this resolve that he would not defile himself, but he would stand with God and with God's word. That's Daniel. And Daniel lived and served during the Babylonian Empire. Well, one of the stories we did not talk about last week, which is really kind of a unique story, is found in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonians are ruling and they have a king by the name of Belshazzar. And he is in the palace, and history tells us that the Babylonian palace and the city 
was just a magnificently walled city. You could not get into this place if you tried. And they really felt and believed that they were invincible. That's why they were the world power. So Belshazzar, he is throwing a wild animal house type of party in the palace because nobody can defeat him and he's got everything. Well, during the course of this wild party, a human hand appears and writes a message on the wall. Well, that human hand was really God giving a message to King Belshazzar and to those who were observing everything that was going on in that party. And the words that were written on the wall were meaty, meaty, tekel, parson. That's what God wrote on the wall. Well, of course, everybody's a little freaked out about this because it's a hand writing on the wall and they didn't know what the words meant. And so they began to bring bring people in to say, what are these words? And what's the message for us? Somebody is trying to say something to us and we want to know what this means. Well, nobody could interpret these words. And then Belshazzar remembered Daniel. Hey, remember that guy, Daniel? He's really upright. He's a good guy. He's got a strong relationship with his God. Let's bring Daniel in and see if Daniel can tell us what all of this means. And so they went and they found Daniel and they brought him in. Daniel looked at the wall and the handwriting and said, Oh, meany, meany, tekel, parson. Meany means numbered. Tekel means weighed. And parson means divided. Here's the message for you, king. Your days are numbered because you have been weighed and you've been found wanting and your kingdom, which you think is so invincible, is going to be divided. Well, Belshazzar and all of his officials looked at Daniel after he made that proclamation and said, Bah! That's not going to happen to us. We're Babylon. Nobody can get to us. Thank you, Daniel. We appreciate your time, and we appreciate who you are, but you can go on with the rest of your evening. We're going to be just fine in here. That Daniel's a crazy guy, right? Well, that very night, not a year later, not years later, but that very night, Babylon was invaded and conquered by Cyrus the Great, and the Medo-Persians. So we have a new world power on the scene. There's the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and eventually the Medes and the Persians. So say hello to King Cyrus. He is the new most powerful person in all of the world. So that's who we're talking about here. And in chapter 1 of Ezra, he gives this proclamation. So here's what it says, verse 2. This is what the King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found... Let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold and supplies for the journey and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. God was working in them as well. God stirred in the heart of King Cyrus, someone who is not a believer. God also begins to stir in the hearts of his people, the priests, the Levites, and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. Cyrus directed Mithridath, the treasurer of Persia, to count these items and present them to Sheshbazar, the leader of the exiles, returning to Judah. So here's the list of the items that were returned. It's all recorded here for us. Gold basins, 30. Silver basins, 1,000. Silver incense burners, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Silver bowls, 410. Other items, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Okay, what's happening here? Well, what's happening is that God is in control. God is still in control and working throughout history to accomplish his purposes. And what we discover in Ezra chapter 1 is that God moves in the heart of King Cyrus, someone who is not a believer in the God of Israel, but God moves in his heart And he gives permission to those who had been deported and taken away from their hometown many years ago to return to Jerusalem. And then God begins to stir in the hearts of his people as well. So there's the stirring of the king and there's the stirring of God's people to basically go back to Jerusalem and build a real home for God. To put the temple back together so that they can respond to the greatness of God. So you've got King Cyrus, his heart's being moved by God. You've got the people with their hearts being stirred, all to go back to build a real home. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up because we're in the process of building a real home for God, and it's unique that we find ourselves in Ezra as we are embarking on our own process of building a real home as well. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up about what's happening in Ezra. I want to introduce you to a historical artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder. So check this out. Looks great, doesn't it? Doesn't it? That's the Cyrus Cylinder. This is an actual historical artifact that was discovered in the 1800s by a British expedition. It is a baked clay barrel that is written in cuneiform script. The significance of the Cyrus Cylinder is quite remarkable because what historians will tell you is that what you find in this script written on this baked clay barrel mirrors exactly what I just read to you in Ezra chapter 1. It's something that supports what we find in Scripture. And it is accurate, and it is real, and it is available for everyone to observe and to read. 
And what we find on this barrel on Cyrus's cylinder is a recording of the Babylonian conquering and the city that was taken by King Cyrus. What you also discover there is that King Cyrus gave passageway. He gave permission to a group of exiles, to a group of people who did not have a home in his kingdom to return to their home to begin a construction process. We know that group of people to be the Israelites, to be God's special people who had been deported and taken away from what was theirs. God is now opening the way for them to return and to honor God again by building a real home. Now, here's what's unique about this. And I don't want this to be missed in our conversation. God uses someone who doesn't even believe in him to initiate the process of rebuilding his temple again. It's quite a remarkable thought. And here's the deal with that. It just helps us to know that God is in control. God doesn't lose sight of what's happening. And he has the ability to use whomever he chooses to accomplish his purposes. So here in Ezra chapter 1, we've got God stirring in the heart of a king who doesn't really believe in him to send his people back to rebuild the temple. Why the temple? Why a real home for God? Why is that such a big deal? Well, you have to remember that the physical temple in the Old Testament was a picture of God's passion to be with his people. And so a temple, or the temple that would have been in Jerusalem, was a very strong symbol of the presence of God and that he was with his people and he loved them and cared about them. You may remember that when Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded the city of Jerusalem, one of the very first things that he did was he destroyed the temple because he knew the value of that to the people that lived there. And a destroyed temple meant that there was no presence of God, and it really deflated the people. And so here we have God stirring in the heart of somebody who doesn't even know him to send his people back to rebuild the thing that was a symbol of God's passionate desire to be with his people. The temple is a really big deal. Now, here's what we read in Ezra chapter 3. Verse 10 says, When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple. So this is all in motion now. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. Will you say that with me? He is so good. Now, let's say it with a bit of passion, all right? He is so good. This is what they're singing. You've got people shouting and there's cymbals, there's banging and clashing. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Now keep in mind, this is being written by someone who has observed some terrible things. God's people being disobedient to God. God bringing in other nations 
to cause God's people to look up to him in dependence. There's been a lot of dark days, and here's God's people saying, yet still he is so good. His faithful love, it just endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. This is quite a scene, isn't it? God stirring in the heart of a king. God stirring in the heart of his people. The king gives them passageway. You go. You rebuild the temple and I'm going to resource that for you. And we're going to take up offerings so that you can do that. What scripture tells us is that about 50,000 exiles made that journey. And they began the process of building the temple. They started with the altar. So that appropriate sacrifices could be made once again that would honor God. After the altar was built and established and proper sacrificing was taken place, was going on there, they then started the process of building the temple. And after all of the walking away from God, after all of the darkness, they're back. They're back in their land that God had given to them. And they're back responding to the greatness of God And the temple construction has begun. But there is a problem. There's a problem. And I almost hesitate to share this because this is wonderful news. And you know God has to be really happy with his people. They've returned some of them, many of them. And they've established the altar again. They laid the foundation for the temple. And they're beginning this construction process. But there is a problem. And the problem is that God's people quickly got preoccupied with their everyday living and all of the things that they had to do, and God and his temple were quickly pushed into the shadows. God's great thing became a small thing. And the construction of the temple stopped for 16 years after the foundation had been laid while the people just began the process of living out their everyday lives. And so God does something unique. He raises up a prophet. Do you remember the prophets? We've talked about them a little bit. They are these individuals that God taps on the shoulder and says, I'm going to give you a message that I want you to deliver to my people. They're wandering. They're not paying attention to me. They're not being compliant. And I want you to go and talk to them and get their attention. And that's what God does here. He's so happy with them. They've returned, they've started the process, but they're a bit distracted now. And so God raises up the prophet Haggai to send a message to his people. And here's what Haggai does. We find this in Haggai, the book named after the prophet, chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. 
You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And guess what? They do it. They're like, Haggai, those are great words. Yeah, we've gotten a little distracted here. And we need to line our lower story up with God's upper story. We do want to be obedient to God. We do want the temple rebuilt. And so they begin the process again. They build the temple. It took a few years, but they get it done. And here's what we read in Ezra chapter 6. There was great joy, right? The temple is completed. The building has been built God has a real home. The symbol of God's passion for being with his people is there. And there was great joy throughout the land because the Lord had caused the king of Assyria, at Cyrus, to be favorable to them so that he helped them to rebuild the temple of God, the God of Israel. They allowed God to get their attention and to redirect their passions. This is really what Ezra records for us. They were willing to let God get their attention and redirect their passions. Here's the question for all of us. Will we? Will we? Will we allow God to get our attention and redirect our passions when necessary? I've been pastoring for a few years now, and I have the chance to sit down and talk with a lot of people about their successes, as well as their fears, their wins and their losses, failures, everything in between. And I love having those conversations, because it gives me the chance to encourage and to pray, and I really cherish those times. In all those conversations, I have never had someone say to me, you know, I would like to just ignore God for a season of my life. Like, that's what I want to do. I, I do not need the blessing of God in my life. I don't want that at all. I don't want God to help me. I want to walk away from God. I want to ignore God. That's what I want to do with my life. I've never had anyone say that. But yet I've watched many drift and allow other things to get in the place of God. Things that take God's place and take the priority that God wants to have in life. Whether it's the job or the hopes and dreams of the future, whether it's money or debt or stress or just plain old sin, stuff that takes the place of God and gets in the way, and all of a sudden people wake up, and they no longer desire to honor God, to respect God, or to worship Him. Their priorities are just a bit scrambled. And that all happens when we don't appropriately place God where he deserves to be in the center of our lives, when we don't place God's things first. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. 
put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. And I think here's how we can know this may be happening in our life. We've got to ask the question, am I consistently putting God's things first? Am I doing that or not? Have I allowed something else to get in the way? Put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. I think life is way too short to miss out on first and second things. It's just too short, isn't it? So what do we do with all of this? got King Cyrus, the Medes and the Persians, you've got Ezra, you've got Haggai, you've got the Cyrus Cylinder. What do we do with all of this information? How do we apply this to our lives today? What does this mean for my story? I have two thoughts. Number one, identify areas of life where passion for God has slipped. And I want all of us to be thinking about this right now. And throughout the day, and throughout this week, Are there some areas in my life where passion for God has slipped, where I have allowed something else to come in that is a greater priority and and has greater importance than God himself? Have I allowed that to happen? Maybe it's your personal time with God. Something else has just taken that. Or maybe it's your willingness to speak of God's compassion with others in your life. Maybe it's your empathy or your generosity or even your willingness to trust God with the things that really hurt. Have we allowed other things to take the place of God? Has passion slipped? God's things first. First things first. I think we all got to walk through the process of evaluating and identifying areas of life where passion for God has slipped. Would you allow the words of an ancient prophet named Haggai to call you back in to a passionate relationship with your creator? God's things first. So how do you step back into this passionate passionate relationship with our creator? Well, that's actually the second thought, and that is place God where he deserves to be at the center of your life. Arrange life around him instead of trying to fit God into some of the leftover spaces. God's things first. First things first. Let's move those items out of the way and make sure that God truly is at the center of our lives I think this is ultimately where we bring happiness and joy to the heart of God and we begin to see him move in our lives just like what he did back in Ezra's day. First things first. God's things first. Father, we're thankful for some time just to look at this amazing book in Scripture. a lot of history in Ezra, a lot of discussions about empires and kings and God, all of that is there to help us learn from what happened in the past. God, we've been walking through the story for several weeks and we've watched your people be obedient to you and then we have watched them turn around and become disobedient and then we've watched them confess and get right with you and then not be compliant the next moment. God, this is kind of the story of our lives as well, if we're honest with ourselves. We allow God to have priority, and then we let other things kind of get in the way. 
God, I pray that the story as recorded in Ezra of God's people returning to do a great work, but yet they allowed God's great thing to become a small thing, that we would take it upon ourselves not to let that happen to us. God, help us to put first things first, to put your things first. I'd like for you just to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. I think one of the greatest ways that we can make sure that God is at the center of our lives is to make sure that we have embraced his gift to us. And maybe you've never considered what God has done for you. And maybe you've never taken the initial step of placing God at the center of your life by trusting in the work of his beloved son, Jesus, who came and lived and died, paying the price for your sins and my sins. And then he rose again, conquering death, assuring us if we trust in him alone, without adding anything to that, we can have a forever friendship with God. That's placing God at the center of your life. If you have never taken that step, I would encourage you right now in the quietness of this moment, from your heart to God's ears, cry out to him and acknowledge the fact you know that you have messed things up and you know your life isn't perfect but God has given something to you that you never could have received or accomplished on your own. It is the gift of Jesus. And just tell God that you're trusting in him alone right now. You're embracing his leadership and his forgiveness. You're truly placing him at the center of your life in front of everything and anything else that may be going on. Just tell him you're trusting in him alone. That's placing God at the center of your life. And if you're crying out and you're communicating that desire to God today, I want to say congratulations to you. You have in God someone who will never leave you, never. Maybe you've taken that step, but you've allowed other things to just crowd out God and what he wants for you. Then I would encourage you right now, to take whatever that item is, whatever you're thinking about, whatever that thing is that is just coming to your mind right now and just give that to God and say, I want to move that out of the way and place you where you deserve to be. I want God to be in the driver's seat of my life. Just take a moment and communicate that to God. Place him back at the center. It's a good thing to do. God, in the quietness of this moment, again, we thank you for what we have observed and what we have read today and how you are so patient with us, giving us chance after chance to get things right, to be obedient, and to place you at the center. God, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us to walk out of here today with a sense that we want you in control. God, for those that have trusted in you alone for the very first time, may they walk out of here with a sense of joy and happiness in their lives that they've never had before. And God, may they sense your presence and the reality of that, and may it drive them just to honor you. 
God, for those that have made that decision, may again, we just remove everything that gets in the way of you being in control and leading and guiding us. Help us to put your things first. First things first. This is the story of Ezra. We thank you for this example today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.